Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. This is uh, your host Howard Sides. Uh, we're continuing today in our study through the book of Revelation and we're going to be beginning chapter 12 today. Chapter 12 if you want to turn there. And this is part of a uh, continuing story that involves chapter 10, 11, 12 and 13 together, uh, where chapter 10 and 12 uh, shows us the purposes of heaven revealed. And then in chapter 12, uh, down through 13, uh, are the purposes of hell revealed and the things going on there. So we're going to get started in chapter 12. And the first thing right off that we'll notice as we go through chapter 12 is that there are seven uh, great personages or people that are revealed uh, great being that they stand out not not any particular reason for the word great other than that that they stand out uh, one of those will be the woman which represents the nation of Israel uh, the second is the great red dragon which represents Satan the third being the male child and that represents the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth being Michael, the angel, which represents all of the holy angels together. Uh, fifth, the remnant, the remnant. And this represents regenerate Israel, regenerate Israel. Uh, the sixth is what is referred to as the beast out of the sea. And that is representing the Antichrist, and then seventh, the beast out of the earth, the beast out of the earth, and this represents the false prophet. Uh, chapter 12 uh, is broken down into um, one, two, three parts, uh, and the first part of that is the woman, in verses 1 through 6, the woman, verses 1 through 6, the second being the war, verses 7 through 12a, verse 7 through 12a is the war, and then third is the woe, W-O-E, the woe, and that is uh, verse 12b down through chapter, uh, or verse 17, the end of the chapter. So you have the woman, the war, and the woe. And we're going to try and get through the woman today, so uh, we'll read verses uh, 1 through 6 and then break down uh, the things that we'll notice about this woman. All right, Rome, uh, Romans, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. 
And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. All right, so there's several individuals here already talked about the woman, the great red dragon, the male child already. Uh, so this is uh, in this section called the woman, verses one through six. Now, uh, within the woman, there are three uh, items of note that will uh, break this section down. Verse 1 is her prophetic significance. Verse 1, her prophetic significance. Then uh, verse 2 down through the first part of verse 4, so 4a as I call it, uh, her prolonged sufferings. Her prolonged sufferings. And those are that section's broken down. Uh, verse 2 describes the pain of her delivery. Verse 3 is the portrayal of the dragon. And then 4a is the power of his deception. The power of his deception. All right. And then the third section of this uh, portion here is uh, verse 4b down through verse 6. It's her promised seed. Her promised seed. And 4b will show us the ravenous dragon. Verse 5 will show the raptured child. And then verse 6, the rescued woman. <clears throat> All right, so that's quite a bit to get through, so uh, we'll jump into it and get right to it, okay? Hopefully we can get through it. All right, so uh, in verse one, her prophetic significance, her prophetic significance, uh, that first phrase, and there appeared a great wonder, not just a wonder. Now consider the fact that he's seeing quite a bit here uh, that Jesus is revealing to John, um, and for it to be great, uh, it's one of fascination. It's one that, that draws particular or peculiar attention uh, out of what he's already seen. Uh, so, of course, this vision is being seen by John, and he is describing it here. And this phrase tells us that what is seen is a representation of something else. It represents something else. And, and we talked about the the seven personages revealed here. Uh, this woman, of course, represents the nation of Israel. And remember, the book of Revelation does not deal with the church. It's God dealing with the nation of Israel. So many of the things that take place in the book of Revelation deal with the nation of Israel. And when he dealt with Israel is when he used signs and wonders. Uh, he doesn't use them today because he's dealing with the church, uh, the age of grace and that so forth. So uh, signs and symbols are not, not necessarily something that he uses for the church. All right, uh, the next phrase, in heaven. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. Uh, this word heaven here is the Greek word oranos, uh, which uh, basically means the idea of elevation or the sky. So what we're talking about is the first heaven. It's not in the third heaven, the realm of uh, God and, and his angels. This, this is the sky. Uh, so basically he's saying, and there appeared a great wonder in the sky. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, he uh, uses this phrase, a woman. And we mentioned it before. This represents the nation of Israel. Now, the picture here uh, is one who is poor, broken, and a conquered country. For at the time of Christ's birth, she was a tributary of Rome, if you remember that. Uh, Rome uh, 
dominated the land of Judea and was in control there. Now, while this vision is seen in heaven or in the sky, basically, uh, it also represents the nation of Israel on earth. Although it's seen in the sky, it's representing the nation of Israel on earth. Now, the reason that in heaven is used is that it is showing us God's thoughts and view of Israel. It's his viewpoint, so we're having to look up anyway to see that, what he sees. Okay? All right. Now, in the fact that we're talking about a woman here, in the book of Revelation, uh, you'll find four women that are referred to. Four women, different women that are referred to. Uh, one is Jezebel, and that was in back in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, where he says, uh, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I, I probably said it then, I'll say it again, that I'm, I'm not so sure this is actually referring to a woman named Jezebel, or if it's a woman who acts like the woman in the Old Testament known as Jezebel in, in the book of the Kings, uh, First Kings, I believe it is. Uh, <laughs> she, she's basically acting like that Jezebel, so that's why he calls her Jezebel. And I, and I believe that's what the reference is there. Uh, most people don't really name their children after uh, people who've done bad things. You know, how many uh, pe people do you know named Judas? I mean, I know they're out there. Of course, I do know they're out there, but uh, it's not really a favored name uh, as maybe John is for reference. Okay, so that's the first woman. Uh, the second woman uh, is, of course, here, where we're talking about the nation of Israel. The third one we'll come across is the great whore, or the harlot, as she's sometimes called, uh, Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. So that's in a future uh, lesson there. And then the fourth one is the bride. The bride. And that's in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 8. And it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Okay, now, when it comes to this woman uh, referred to here, uh, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman. Uh, there are many viewpoints, uh, different from the one that we're going to present today, and I'm going to introduce you to a couple of them, uh, because I think it's important to point out what is wrong with these viewpoints, and, and they're very popular viewpoints. The first is that this woman here, uh, is thought by the Roman Catholic Church to be Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. They hold that view. Now, the problem with this particular view, uh, number one, uh, Satan did not attempt to destroy the child as soon as it was born, in verse 4, but two years later. Uh, the second one, Mary did not flee into the wilderness, 
as it's shown here in verses 6 and then again in verse 14. But she and Joseph took the baby and fled to Egypt. Uh, the child was not called up to heaven while Mary... Excuse me. Uh, yeah, while Mary was in the wilderness. Verse 5 is what it's talking about here at the end of it. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. That did not happen to Jesus when he was born to Mary. Um, fourth, Mary did not bring forth the ruler with the rod of iron, as it, as it mentions here in verse 5, but a savior. A savior. You remember the angel said that when they came to the uh, uh, shepherds out in the field. Uh, let's see. One, two, three, four. All right. Fifth, uh, there is no evidence that Mary was in Egypt three and a half years, as mentioned here in verse six and verse 14. We just don't know. It doesn't say, uh, the first reference we have to Jesus after, uh, they come out of Egypt is when he went into the, uh, temple and taught, uh, amazing them all. And I think he was about 12 years old, I believe. So, I mean, you know, there's that, uh, six, the dragon did not persecute Mary as he does here in verse 13. Um, seventh, the dragon did not make war with Mary's other children, as he does here in verse 17. And eighth, Mary has never worn a crown, as described in verse 1, and when she gets one, she will cast it before the throne, back in chapter 4 and verse 10, just like the rest of us will. Okay, Mary is particular. She is special in that she was the virgin who gave birth to Jesus Christ. But the Roman Catholic Church has taken it upon themselves to deify her. And this is wrong. This is elevating her to the position of a god. Uh, they actually refer to her, or we'll see it a little bit later, as the queen of heaven. The queen of heaven. And uh, we'll get into what exactly is very wrong with that phrase as it refers actually to someone else from a time gone past. Okay. All right. So that was the first view, the Roman Catholic church view. The second view is uh, that this woman represents the new Testament church. And this is a uh, popular, I won't say it's um, the view of all of them, but it is a popular view of the Protestant churches. I know what you're saying. Whoa, wait a minute. The Protestants. Uh, the, the Protestants are different from the Baptist. Baptist faith is not a Protestant view. The Protestants came about as they broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. So they have their roots in the Roman Catholic Church. Christ did not establish his church out of another church. He established his church fresh, and new on his own, all right? So the Baptist faith, which we are, we believe is the closest thing to what uh, came out of uh, the book of Acts there when it says they were first called Christians. That That's not a loving term. That was a mocking term, uh, but that's Christ-like, Christians, Christians. Uh, that, that's how that come about, all right? So back to this point of view, not chasing that dragon or dragon, how we're talking about dragon, man, not chasing that rabbit too far down the trail. Uh, so uh, the Protestant view is that this woman is the New Testament church. Now, the problems with this view, again, Mary did not give birth to the church. Verse 5 talks about that. 
uh, the church was born out of Jesus' sufferings, not Mary's. From verse 2. Third, the church does not rule any nations with a rod of iron. The true church does not rule any nations with a rod of iron. Verse 5. Uh, fourth, Mary's child is called up to God and his throne. Verse 5. And we'll talk about what the difference is in that. Uh, while she and the remnant of her seed are left to be persecuted in verse 14. This cannot represent the church as the whole body will be raptured at one time. They will not be split up. They will not be separated. They're raptured at one time. And again, the rapture has already taken place before this. Um, he's not going to put the chapter uh, church through this. Uh, fifth, the church has never fled into the wilderness, uh, mentioned here in verse 6 and again in verse 14. Sixth, there is no three and a half year time period connected with the church, uh, as mentioned here in verse 6 and verse 14. Seventh, Christ came out of Israel. The church did not produce Christ, but rather Christ produced the church. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 9. Verses 4 through 5, it says, Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises? Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen. Alright, so that's the viewpoints of the woman. Look at this next phrase here. Uh, in verse 1, it says, uh, this woman was clothed with the sun. Clothed with the sun. Now, the sun here represents supreme authority. Supreme authority. Now, Israel will be the head and not the tail. And you're like, what? <laughs> the head, not the tail? Uh, that's referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 13. And he tells them the Lord uh, Lord is speaking there it says and the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail and thou shalt be above only and thou shalt not be beneath if that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God which I command thee this day to observe and to do them so God basically was telling them I'm you are my chosen uh, there's none like you anywhere else in the universe, any of the universes, let's put it that way, and he's telling them, as long as you follow me, and you do as, as I command you, you're going to be the head, you will not be the tail, uh, but on the flip side of that coin, a tail side of that coin, uh, he tells them that if you do not obey me, I'm, I'm going to uh, send in foreigners to take your lands, to take your children, to put you in bondage, to enslave you, uh, and, and that brings up a point. I, I don't want to chase this rabbit too far uh, because we'll get into this uh, sometime when we get into the book of Genesis and we get into that. Um, the idea of slavery, um, I, I take the position that it is wrong. I, I sincerely believe slavery is wrong. One human being putting another in bondage is wrong. But it is may astonish you to know this, uh, it may surprise you to hear this, but nowhere in the Bible is slavery condoned by God. Nowhere. As a matter of fact, slavery is a tool that God uses on his own people. Don't forget that Israel 
was in bondage, which is slavery, for, what, 400 years to the Egyptians. That's when Moses came about. God said, let my people go and all that. And you would have thought they'd learned their lesson before. Oh, no, it's not till uh, in, in the days of Daniel, in the days of Isaiah. Lo and behold, the Babylonians do what? Take them into bondage. God allowed that to happen. So, I, you know, it is wrong. Uh, but God doesn't say it's a sin. Uh, as a fact, he uses it as a, a tool to teach his children a lesson. Um, yeah, I'll leave that there. <laughs> uh, so again, this phrase, uh, phrase clothed with the sun, uh, Israel's glory will be manifested in the second coming of the Messiah. Now you look at the nation of Israel now, um, she is tough. There ain't no doubt about it. Uh, this is a nation that is completely surrounded by her enemies. I, I, I mean, think about it and look and, and pull out a map and look at it. Uh, Israel is completely surrounded by Arab nations, and they are all her enemy. Now, Egypt is kind of on, I, I guess you'd say speaking terms, Jordan maybe, uh, but they're all funneling money one way or another uh, to Hezbollah and to some of these others that are uh, launching these rockets into the nation of Israel and all of this going to there, but, but they'll never wipe that nation out. Uh, just I'm just putting it out there to you right now that the nation of Israel is going to last forever. They're going to outlast all the other nations. And why? It's not because of who they are. It's not because of what they have. But it's because of who knows them. And by the who knows them, I'm talking about God. And God promised them that he's going to elevate them here when he returns uh, to set up his millennial kingdom. And they will be this head and not the tail. And, and that's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 4. Uh, he says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy son shall come from far, and thy daughter shall be nursed at thy side. So th the time is coming when Israel is going to be elevated to the top, and it's going to be God that does it. All right, next phrase, and the moon under her feet. So she's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. Uh, this is symbolic of complete delegated authority delegated authority. Israel will not rise to kingdom glory until after the church age has passed. The church will have to be raptured out for Israel to come back into, uh, I guess you'd say, recognition, uh, back into power as it is. Uh, the next phrase, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Uh, this is symbolic of full administrative power full administrative power. And of course, the 12 stars there, this is the nation of Israel, so it's kind of easy to point out that represents the 12, uh, tw uh, yeah, mm, the 12 tribes. <laughs> I'll get it out. <laughs> the 12 tribes. Okay, so that's the first point, uh, her prophetic significance. Now the second one, her prolonged sufferings, verses 2 down through 4a. 
Uh, verse 2 talks about the pain of her delivery, the pain of her delivery. Uh, notice the phrase, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. Travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. This uh, describes natural childbirth as we know it today. There's babies that are born, uh, the women are not in so much pain, but that's because they're doped up. If it's a natural birth, uh, most of the time there is pain involved. I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, but the unique birth of Christ is that the birth came before the labor pains. Uh, Isaiah 66 and verse 7 says, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man child. Now remember, this is speaking of the nation of Israel, not Mary, the nation of Israel. All right. So the pain portrayed here is the suffering Israel will go through all the way to the end of the great tribulation. Okay. So she brought forth Christ and then she travailed and, and then her pain came. So it's backwards. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And and a lot of things with the Bible are that way. Uh, God does it a unique way so that when he moves, when he acts, uh, there's not confusion there. Uh, there's no question uh, other than when we try to explain it away. And, and Satan will give us tools to allow us to explain it away. Uh, but when we face the facts as they are, uh, th there is no doubt left. All right. Okay, so that's verse 2. Verse 3 uh, is the portrayal of the dragon. The portrayal of the dragon. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. This is John telling us that this also is a symbolic representation. Again, he's reminding us that. Uh, great is the first word that he uses here to describe what he's seeing. Great represents his vast power. Uh, he controls all the nations of the world and even offered them to Jesus if he would worship him. If you remember that back in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, when Jesus was out in the uh, wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness, and Satan come to him to tempt him. And in verses 8 and 9, chapter 4, Matthew says, Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now, the irony of that statement is that uh, they belong to his father. They belong to God. Uh, but at that point in time, and as it is today, God is allowing Satan to control the nations of the world. Okay? And I know there's little marks with that. You can go into the book of Job and see where uh, you know, God, God allows him to rule, but uh, God also keeps him in check. Um, I'm not going to go so far to say that God doesn't let him run rampant. Um, <laughs> look around us today. Uh, Satan's running pretty rampant. Um, but I, I do believe that there are uh, just individuals, and I think Job represents that. Job, Satan could not touch Job because go, Job was in touch with God. How about that? Uh, and that's probably the problem that we're having today. There's not many people in touch with God, and so Satan uh, has the rule and run of the land. 
All right. Uh, uh, again, Satan's ultimate goal here is to be worshipped by all. He wants to be God. Wants to be God. Okay, so that's the word great. Uh, the next word in the description is red. The word red. Uh, this represents his murderous and bloodthirsty character. Uh, the Bible tells us he was a murderer from the very beginning. John chapter 8 and verse 44. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. All right, the next word, the great red dragon, the word dragon. Now, this represents the viciousness of his character, the viciousness of his character. And it's twofold in that it's uh, a dragon is a winged serpent, okay? A winged serpent. So the winged part of it represents his speed, and the serpent part of it represents his deception. You remember that goes right back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, where he tempted Eve as the serpent. So he's uh, uh, the deception there. Uh, Walter Scott, in his book, Exposition of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, makes this comment, and I quote, Why is the dragon used as a symbol of Satan? Pharaoh king of Egypt in his cruelty to God's people and in proud and haughty independence of God is termed the great dragon in Ezekiel chapter 29 verses 3 through 4. Nebuchadnezzar is similarly spoken of in respect to his violence and cruelty in Jeremiah 51 and 34. Gathering up the numerous scripture references in the book of Psalms, and in the first three of the greater prophets to the crocodile, the sovereign of the seas, who has identified with the dragon, insatiable cruelty seems the main feature. The Egyptians regarded the crocodile or dragon, according to their hieroglyphics, as the source and author of all evil, worshipped under the name of Typho, T-Y-P-H-O. Uh, the color of the dragon, red, denotes his murderous, bloodthirsty character. This is the first time in Scripture that Satan is directly spoken of as a dragon. The heathen monarchs, Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, enslaved and oppressed the people of God, and thus far, acting in satanic power, merited the appellation of dragon. But at the time treated of our chapter, Satan is the prince of the world, its virtual ruler. The Roman power is the instrument through which he acts. Hence, the title Great Red Dragon can now, for the first time, be used of him. End quote. All right, so there was a creature, I guess you'd say, a god mentioned here by the name of Typho. Uh, Typho was the god of evil, uh, and was worshipped out of fear. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't, right? <laughs> He's a god of evil. Uh, nobody worships it out of joy. Well, there are some, but anyway, um, not anyone with common sense. Um, our word typhoon comes from this god, uh, meaning an evil thing to be avoided. Uh, if you've seen how some of these typhoons are, here on the Atlantic coast, we call them hurricanes because we want them to hurry up and get through, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, 
So a typhoon, and, and this is something interesting. I never knew this. Uh, a hurricane uh, spins counterclockwise while a typhoon spins clockwise. I believe that's right. Now, don't, don't I'm not 100% sold on that, <laughs> but I believe that's right. And I think it has to do with the equator, too. Um, that, that, that's the interesting thing, too. Uh, when you, uh, what is it, drop a, uh, a, put a drop of water uh, or pour the water out, on, on, on the northern side of the equator, it, it spins like when you flush a toilet, okay? The water goes down one way. And right on the other side of the equator, it goes in the opposite direction. And in some country, right on right on the equator, right there on the ground, there are two bowls of water, and, and they show that uh, right there on the line. They they two spin in opposite directions. That's, that's fascinating. <laughs> that's something funny to uh, look at. It, it's crazy, but it's real. It is real. Uh, okay, the next phrase: seven heads. Uh, seven heads. Uh, a head is symbolic of wisdom. Seven is symbolic of fullness and completion. Now, Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 12 tells us, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus said the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, what this phrase is referring to, this king of Tyrus, uh, is is a description of Satan. And it reveals two lies that the world has concerning Satan. The first is his beauty. Uh, most people, if you walk out on the street and say, hey, can you describe for me what you think the devil looks like? Most people are going to tell you that um, he's red all over, uh, that he has horns, he has cloven hooves and he has a forked tail. You know why? Because they're reading this great red dragon part of it and, and they're grasping at little descriptions they've heard and it's all been joined together till they have a vision in their mind. Uh, th this red creature having horns, cloven hooves, and a forked tail is ac actually uh, an illustration of the pagan god Pan, worshipped by the Greeks and the Romans together. Pan, P-A-N. He uh, is described this way um but we know um that satan was the fairest the most beautiful of all the angels and paul even warns us and and so many people don't realize this uh where he said that uh even an angel you know even an angel of light uh don't trust them if they teach another gospel because such is Satan and, and his ministers, which, of course, are demons. Uh, just because somebody said that they have a near-death experience and they saw the light at the end of the tunnel, um, you know, walk into a train tunnel. Eventually, you're going to see a light at the other end of that tunnel, too, but that don't mean it's heaven. <laughs> does not, light at the other end of the tunnel don't always mean it's something good. No, does not. Um, all right, uh, so it reveals the... the the misconception we have about his beauty and also uh, about his intelligence. Now we tend to think that we can best Satan on our own. We think we can fight Satan. Hey, we're God's child. Nothing's going to happen to us. We, uh, what, what's the phrase you can tack hell with a water pistol? Yeah, right. Um, not a good idea uh, because he is the master deceiver 
and has great intelligence. We need to uh, respect the idea that, that Satan is more powerful than we are. Yeah. Now, God is more powerful than Satan, and, and we can pray to God to uh, take care of a situation we feel, you know, Satan's kind of overpowering us in or out of control, and, and God will answer that prayer, but it's nothing in us. We can't fight that. All right? Uh, next phrase, ten horns. Ten horns. Now, a horn is symbolic of power, and ten is the number of ordinal perfection, perfection in order. Okay. Satan's objective here is represented as portraying world domination. World domination. Uh, next phrase, seven crowns upon his head. Seven crowns upon his head. Now, James Knox says, and I quote, This reveals that the dragon has real power, but it is not outwardly displayed. When the beast arrives, Revelation 13, 1, the crowns are on his horns. Thus, the dragon will confer displayed power upon his figurehead, the man of sin. Thus, we have subtlety or deception right up to the hour of the Antichrist. Then, for the first time in many centuries, Satan steps out from the shadows. End quote. So, when we see all this power and crowns on the horns and all that stuff, this is the Antichrist so far. But now, here... Satan is usurping the authority. He is stepping out and showing his true self. All right. Uh, the next thought here, verse 4a, the power of his deception. The power of his deception. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. Now we know from past references that these stars are symbolic representations for angels. But what is significant about his tail? What is it telling us about his tail? Now, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 15 says, The ancient and honorable, he is the head and the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tail. So, considering that the Antichrist is the perfect picture of a prophet that teaches lies, this uh, phrase here could be suggesting that the Antichrist deceives yet another third part of the angelic host. I'm not saying that's what it is saying in fact, but it sure does lend to that a lot. Uh, look at Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 through 10. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. And it came down, some of the host and of the stars, to the ground, and stamped upon them. Now, this little horn represents Antiochus Epiphanes, a type of the Antichrist. Many, when they saw them, thought it was the Antichrist. And, of course, they thought back then uh, that he was the Antichrist and, and that many of the things that described was describing things that's going to happen to the Antichrist. It, it was symbolic. It was very close to the same, but it was symbolic or, or a type. Symbolic and a type. Okay. Okay. All right. So we have talked about uh, her prophetic significance and her prolonged sufferings. And now the final point, uh, her promised seed in verse 4b down through verse 6. 
the first point there is in 4B, which talks about the ravenous dragon. The ravenous dragon. All right, it says, uh, and the dragon stood before the woman. The dragon stood before the woman. Now, this act of standing is one of defiance. He's not standing there and honoring what's happening. He's about to take action of a devious manner. Uh, and then it tells us in the next phrase, to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, this is the prophetic fulfillment of the warning God gave Eve back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So this is the prophetic fulfillment of that warning given all the way back there in the beginning of the book of Genesis. All right, the second thought here in verse 5, the raptured child, the raptured child. It says, and she brought forth a man child. Now from God's warning to Eve, uh, she thought this event was going to take place immediately. That what we just read, Genesis 3.15, she thought it was going to take place immediately. So in the following chapter, Genesis 4 and verse 1, it tells us, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. This man, she thought, was this promised seed that God talked about. Now, the seed he was talking about was Jesus Christ, not Cain. All right, but she misconstrued that it was going to happen immediately. So as soon as something hit, uh, happened that, that fit the mold, she jumped all over it and was wrong, by the way. All right, now Satan has continually stood before the woman to destroy God's promised seed. In the Old Testament, Abel was killed by Cain. Noah and his family were spared from the flood. Isaac broke the barrenness of Abraham and Sarah. Jacob had to flee from Esau's intent to kill him. Joseph was spared execution from Potiphar's wife's accusation. Uh, Moses was saved from extermination in the bulrushes. Israel was saved from extermination at the Red Sea. Joash was hidden from Queen Athalia, who erased the royal bloodline so she could rule. Uh, Judah was spared by God from Israel and Rezin, the king of Syria. Also, in the New Testament, Jesus was protected from Herod's slaughter of all the young Hebrew children through a warning by an angel. Uh, Satan openly tempted Jesus to kill himself. Uh, there was an attempted stoning of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 59. A mob tried to throw him off a cliff in Luke chapter 4, verse 29. And violent storms tried to drown him, Mark chapter 4, verses 37 through 39. But in the fullness of time, an angry mob forced Pilate to crucify him. And again, they thought, remember, Satan's like, hallelujah, we've finally done it. We've finally got it. <clears throat> but James Knox says in, in his book, uh, Commentary on Revelation, I like this, and I, and I quote, What the devil did not know, or knowing but did not believe, or believing but did not comprehend, was that Jesus' death would not, or, or would be the death of death that the bruising of the man-child would be the mortal wounding of the serpent's head. As Goliath was slain with his own sword, so he that had the power of death would find his power broken by the death 
of the man-child. Again, those ironic statements, you know, going back and forth. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Uh, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now it is worth noting that while the Bible says Satan is a murderer from the beginning in John 8.44, there is in fact no record of Satan actually killing anyone. But the point is, that Satan has found men willing to yield to his devious ways to carry out his murderous acts for him. He's not had to kill anybody because there's always been somebody to be able to step in and do it for him. Okay, next phrase, a rod of iron. A rod of iron. Now, this is symbolic of irresistible might. Now, this phrase is a quote from Psalms chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now when Christ sets up his millennial reign, he will have to use force and violence to establish it, much to the chagrin and surprise to many out there who claim to be Christians. This will be no peaceful transaction. And, and we'll get into that uh, uh, when we get to that point. But, you know, just saying, uh, Christ is not a, a stranger to violence. Uh, you remember when he turned all them tables over and took the whip to them? For money exchangers in the temple? Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just remember that. Uh, next phrase. Caught up unto God and to his throne. All right. This is that phrase that we talked about earlier. That we were going to get it up to. Uh, what is spoken here is a dual validation. A dual validation. Um, an easy explanation of what dual validation is, is two forms of photo ID. How about that? <laughs> Anytime you have to do something, you have to have two photo ID forms of identification. Well, this is, that is dual validation. And that's what this is speaking of, dual validation. Now, first, he was called up to God's throne immediately following his resurrection. You remember when Mary went to the tomb and it was empty, he was gone. The angel says, oh, why look ye here? He's gone and all that. All right, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 6. And he saith unto them, be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But then secondly, uh, that phrase says, and to his throne. That's something different. Uh, secondly, he was called up to his own throne on the right hand of God 40 days later. You remember he comes back, uh, speaks to doubting Thomas walks with the two on the road from it and, and, and speaks to many uh, in that time. But he said, you know, don't touch me for I've not yet ascended. Uh, and, and then later, right at the end of the gospel uh, books, when he ascends, that, that's, that's this point here. Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
Hebrews chapter 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, this verse begins with a promise made in Genesis 3.15 and then moves straight to his ascension in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, thereby skipping his entire earthly ministry. Now, you may ask, why is that? Uh, he was born on earth as the Savior, not as the Messiah. And that's why uh, he was rejected of many of the Jews. They were looking for a Messiah, not a Savior. Luke chapter 2 verse 11 tells us though, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, not a Messiah, a Savior. Now all through Revelation, John's main focus is not on the humanity of Jesus as the Savior, but rather on the deity of Jesus as Messiah. And the difference is, uh, Savior is the Greek word sotari. Sotari. It means a deliverer, such as God or Christ. Uh, Messiah is the word Mashiach, Mashiach, which means anointed, usually a consecrated person as a king, a priest, or a saint, specifically the Messiah, as derived from the word Mashiach, which means to rub with oil. You remember the uh, uh, Old Testament high priest would have the little container with the oil and, and would bless him and anoint him and, and pray for him and things like that? Yeah. So, by implication, it means to consecrate. Consecrate, not consecrate. Ugh, okay. All right. Um, the final one here, verse 6, talks about the rescued woman. The rescued woman. It says, and the woman fled into the wilderness. All right, now this reminds us of several similar occurrences. Uh, when Israel left Egypt for the wilderness... And when Elijah escaped into the wilderness and was fed by ravens by the brook Cherith, 1 Kings 17, 1-7. Uh, also, when Elijah again fled to the desert and was fed by the angelic messenger, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1-8. through uh, But especially in the frame of time when Revelation was written, there were probably two recent events on John's mind. Number one, during the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes, it was instant death to keep the law and worship the true God. Uh, in the book, 1 Maccabees chapter 2 and verse 29, it says, Many who sought after justice and judgment went down to the wilderness to dwell there. Uh, so there it says there was a lot of them who fled out into the wilderness to escape um, the death sentence of Antiochus Epiphanes. All right, and then the second thing that was on his mind was probably the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 A.D., which would have happened probably somewhere within a 20 to 20, 20 to 30 year period before he wrote this. It's about 96 A.D. And the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so somewhere in there. Uh, so before this event, there was an attitude of revolution and heavy bloodshed. It was quite obvious what was about to happen. Yeah, it was obvious to everybody, either Either the Romans were going to be run out of there or they were going to kill a lot of people and take over uh, with an iron fist. Uh, Eusebius, the Christian historian, tells of Christians in that day who were given a revelation to flee the city and to cross the river Jordan into Perea. 
and dwell in a town called Pella in the book of Eusebius called the Ecclesiastical History uh, 3.5. I guess that's chapter 3, section 5, or book 3, chapter 5, section 5, something like that. Now, this Pella here in the original Macedonian uh, meant stone. Pella means stone. In Greek, the prefix a was added to change the meaning to enclosure of stone. So Pell was stone, and Pella means an enclosure of stone. Now Jesus actually spoke of this very moment uh, here uh, in verse 6 in Mark chapter 13, verse 14. Mark 13, 14. But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. So there was the warning. When you see the abomination of desolation, um, it's time to get out of Dodge. That's what he's saying. Uh, next phrase. Where she hath a place prepared of God. Now this would probably suggest a different place from Pella. Many Bible scholars believe that the mountain fortress of Petra is a likely place. Uh, Petra, uh, in the Old Testament name of Selah. Petra is the Old Testament name of Selah. Um, if you want to look at what Petra looks like, uh, listen, there's many pictures of it online. I, I've got several of them here. Uh, it was actually uh, used in the making of, uh, what was it, uh, Indiana Jones, the third the third movie uh, with Sean Connery when they run out into the desert and they come up into this, what looks like a... a a carving out of the side of a rock wall. That, that's Petra. That, uh, it is a real place. Uh, now, it was established possibly as early as 312 B.C. as the capital city of Edom, currently located in southern Jordan. It is, of course, Jordan's most visited tourist attraction. The most prominent residents of this location were known as Nabataeans, who were nomadic Arabs. The Nabataeans were known for their great ability in constructing efficient water-collecting methods in the barren deserts and carving structures into solid rock, as evidenced right here. Uh, excavations have revealed the Nabataean ability to control the water supply caused by flash floods through the use of dams, cisterns, and water conduits by having formed an artificial oasis. This allowed them to store water for very long periods of drought. Petra lies on the slope of Mount Hor, H-O-R, in a basin among the mountains, which is part of a large valley that runs from the Dead Sea to the Gulf of Akova. According to Arab tradition, Petra is the spot where Moses struck a rock with his staff and water came forth. It is also the place where Aaron is buried, which is Mount uh, the Arab name for the val narrow valley gaining access to Petra is Wadi Musa, or Wadi of Moses. A mountaintop shrine to Moses' sister Miriam was shown to pilgrims during Jerome's time in the 4th century, but its location has not been identified since. Now, John Knox, uh, in his book, uh, the book of Revelation, says, and I quote, most likely the ancient city of Petra. The main gorge by which this rock-hewn city is approached looks down on a rivulet 
which threads its way along its entire length. Its rocky steeps are red, brown, purple, and yellow. Its valley, with its branching tributaries, is about 4,500 feet long and is flanked on all sides by beetling sandstone cliffs. An invading army would have to creep down that narrow, precipitous canyon, twisting and turning through the mountains before even the main citadel itself could be seen. However, there is a location very similar to Petra, about 25 miles away to the north, named Basra, which could be another supposed location. <laughs> Many people think it's Petra. And I, again, I mean, you know, God's going to protect them wherever it is. Um, a lot of evidence leaning to Petra, but there's this place of Basra. Look up Basra and, and and take a look at what it... It is basically a cereal bowl turned upside down, stuck in a valley. Okay? It's round all the way around and very steep walls and it comes to a flat top on the, on the top. I mean, it's like God reached down and scraped the top flat with his hand. Basra. B-O-Z-R-A-H. Uh, it means enclosure, sheepfold, or fortress. Boy, that fits, doesn't it? Sheepfold? Hmm. It's a city of Jobab, one of the early Edomite kings in Genesis 36, 33. Uh, this place is mentioned by name in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, and in Micah. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. Jacob here refers to the precursor or non-spiritual state of God's covenant people who become Israel, the prince of God. Now, it sounds as though God needs to put these people in a place where he can get to them to look to him. Um, Isaiah 63, 1-6 says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This is that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. All right, I got to jump because I've got like less than a minute to try and get the rest of this in. Um, not jumping a lot, but getting to the main points. So um, uh, all these references, uh, Micah 2, 12, uh, Ezekiel 20, 33, 38, Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, mention this Basra. Um, interesting. Um, the last phrase here in, in our verse 6, they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. That number, of course, is representative of the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Now, who is the they they should feed? Who is the they? Uh, one of four things. Angelic host, birds, manna, or the two witnesses. Um, I tend to think it's probably the angelic host. I, it doesn't really say. God could use anything he wants, but it, 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 I think it's possibly the angelic host it would be a good thing for them to see a representative of God in that form, I, I think. All right, so uh, with 50 seconds to go, uh, we knocked out six verses. <laughs> so uh, I'll, let me just say, I thank you for listening. Uh, I hope we uh, had as much fun studying this as I did. And I hope to uh, have you join me on the next podcast. And remember, pray for each other. Pray for me. Pray for this country. All right. And thank you again for listening. God bless you. And we'll see you on the next podcast.